What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Rico's Watches podcast. I'm your host, Eric, and I am here today with J.P. Vicente, who is a Grand Seiko and Seiko collector primarily, but he is here to share with us his incredible collection and uh, give us some insights into those brands as well as what sort of drives him and motivates him as a uh, collector. Uh, JP, it's fantastic to have you on the show, and I'm really excited to chat with you today and get some insights into these uh, amazing watches you have in your collection. Well, thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a, it's a tremendous pleasure, you know, to be here to talk uh, and uh, talk watches and discuss you know, the collection and discuss, you know, the specific uh, pieces that uh, that kind of motivates motivates me. So thank you so much for having me on the show. Absolutely, absolutely. Really quickly, what do you have on the wrist today? Okay, well, today I have a Grand Seiko surprise, <laughs> you know, on the wrist, but I have the SBGH269. And uh, this is a limited edition watch. Um, and uh, it's, it's the one that has that uh, has a you know trying to describe it for you for your listeners it has a very um uh pungent and beautiful burgundy dial so it's a starking red dial and uh, it feels like um you know like a like a lacquered type of thing mm-hmm. like a f- lacquered floor or flooring uh and uh it's it's really really great and it's been designed under uh Nobuhiro Kasugi's uh, design team and uh, it's 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 I, I really love the watch. I think it's it's a fantastic watch. It's got this golden, you know, sort of a gold seconds hand, which really kind of stands against, you know, the the red dial and the the Grand Seiko logo is also, you know, in 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 gold, uh, you know, against the the, the red. So that coloration, that, that differentiation between the 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 juxtaposition of the the red and the yellow is actually pretty cool. So, so that's uh, that's what's on the wrist. Oh, and one thing I I would add about this watch is, you know, um, it has also a pistachio, you know, colored rotor, mm-hmm. you know, on the back, and it's a titanium rotor, and it's basically uh, a pretty cool because it's it's again this this play you know this play with colors that is it's so cool and uh, and it's not painted you know they do that through a process like they uh, it's an ionized process in which they play with the actual metal and the, the colors kind of change so i have another uh, grand seiko the sbg uh, the sbdj 005 which has a green dial you know, with a Mount Mount Awati dial, and that one has a very similar rotor, but it's totally, totally yellow. That that rotor, and it's the same thing. It's just that the way you you heat up and you ionize the whole thing, and it's actually pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, Grand Seiko does some amazing stuff with regards to sort of pushing the limits of different proces or processes and uh, materials in artistic design, right? I mean, they. They really uh, like with regards to like the ionizing processes of titanium with their dial work, with the use of colors, the the way that they paint their dials and even the finishing of their cases. They're offering something really unique that is truly has that like hand worked sort of feel to it and has that sort of next level of watchmaking at still such an accessible price for people who are getting into the watch collecting game. Yeah, I mean, the the whole thing is is. Uh... For, for for Grand Seiko, you know, they started the whole idea of, of Grand Seiko of creating high-end pieces um, with the goal of having an extremely sort of 
um, uh, uh, say, uh, the idea was to have a very legible watch uh, and to make the design work, you know, as a function of what it's supposed to do, you know, and to help legibility. And so there are, you know, the so-called grammar of design. And there were a couple of tenets that they were developed, uh, they, they developed the designs of the watches around, you know, that concept. And uh, when you when you look at the pieces, you see the small little details that you get out of them um, are just incredible because it's it's designed with intent, you know, so everything has a particular um, um, aspiration, so to speak. So when you grab, you know, uh, the the hands of this watch in particular, for example, the way they're kind of brushed, you know, they are brushed in a way that is going to reflect light in a certain way that, you know, you're going to increase visibility of the watch. You know, when you juxtapose that on, on, the, on the dial, it has a purpose for that. If you're using a clean dial, then they will polish it because it will be better, you know, increase the visibility. So it's just, it's just intricate kind of play. And obviously they are also extremely influenced by nature, but that has, it's not only a Seiko or Grand Seiko, it's, it's part of Japanese culture mm -hmm. in general. And we can talk more about that later, but um, so the representation of, uh, of nature and the reflection of nature onto the pieces themselves and onto the 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 work that they create the design is is something that is very um, um uh, prominent you know in the in the in the watch uh in the pieces that they produce so it's kind of it's kind of cool you know because you 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 get a tremendous amount of bang so to speak for for every piece that, that you get and and i would argue that um you know, um, uh, I think uh, Taro Tanaka, who was the first, you know, the the designer who introduced the grammar of design school to Seiko, and Taro Tanaka came to Seiko to work for Seiko, not just exclusively Grand Seiko, but the notion of, of creating very specific, um, uh, a very specific way of designing the watch, of cutting it and having light being reflected and whatnot. I think that that's the moment when Seiko became super interesting, you know, because it became, it, it was a real high-end Japanese watch. Mm -hmm. It was not a high-end watch, a high-end Japanese watch that, uh, uh, let me say, it wasn't a high-end watch that was made in Japan, but looked like a Swiss watch. It was, <clears throat> excuse me, it's something that at some point you looked at it and you could tell this is a Japanese design type of watch. And, uh, and I think that was, uh, you know, when Tanaka introduced that, uh, I think that that completely kind of revolutionized the way uh, uh, watchmaking, Japanese watchmaking, you know, was was taking place. And, uh, and that is is phenomenal, you know, like, uh, from a um, uh, from a, a collector's perspective, I think, because you are buying a Japanese piece and that's what's distinct about it. It's not just another, you know, and, and there's absolutely nothing wrong. Obviously I own a, a whole bunch of Swiss pieces and things like that, but, uh, and we can, we can certainly uh, talk about them as well. But, but what I like about Seiko and Grand Seiko is that it does have that 
kind of no Japanese-ness, you know, quote unquote to it, that it makes it super distinct and uh, makes it so intricate that you can say, okay, this is, I, I know what this is. I know what this piece is because it doesn't look like any other piece, if that makes sense. It does. And the, everything is done with uh, intention as well, right? Like there's always, there's always right. an intent behind every decision that's made on every single piece. And, and I can really appreciate that. Like it wasn't, you know, these Seiko watches in general, but also Grand Seiko watches or, or King Seiko watches or by any extension, like you can tell everything is done, you know, one designer kind of put this piece together and it's his vision of a, of a piece, you know, and it's not something that was just slapped together in, in a boardroom from, you know, kind of the parts bin, right? It's not something that you see with Seiko's. And I think that is something that really captures the uniqueness of the brand. And I think what has sort of carried it through as such a, like a Titan in the, not only the, the Asian production uh, watch industry, but the watch industry as a whole uh, and, and why, you know, it started to give the Swiss watches such a run for their money, especially in the 1960s, 1970s, when they were crushing it at the uh, observatory trials and things like that. So it's an absolutely incredible brand that has some amazing history behind it. And I'm so glad we have a guest like you today to come and educate everybody about it. Cause you're way more interesting than I am to talk about the subject. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you're too kind. You, you know, a lot about it as well. So you're just being too modest there, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's one of like, I don't know, it, it's kind of it, it, the passion for Seiko um, and Seiko pieces. It kind of goes back a little bit to how um, the hobby really began for me. And know, how was that? Really think about it. Yeah. So, so it's just one of those things. My first, uh, uh, let's call it great watch, you know, was actually a Lanco. Do you, do you remember, do you, I don't know if I've ever seen that. The, unfortunately, I don't have it anymore, but that was uh, a wedding present that my mom gave to my dad. And uh, it was a 34 millimeter gold watch. Uh, I don't have it anymore. It's, uh, you know, very sad, but, um, but it is, it is, it was my first kind of like intro into watches. And uh, from the, that moment, I was like completely sort of hooked, you know, and, uh, and uh, I grew up, uh, you know, with a lot of um, uh, sort of uh, Japanese descent friends. And, uh, and uh, it, it was a thing that they all kind of like a lot of people were wearing Seiko, you know, around me. You know, it was just um, kind of sort of everywhere when I started, you know, like sort of looking at it. And, uh, and I, I, I kind of fell in love with it, you know, and I started like, you know, uh, looking at, uh, the, the brand and at the time, you know, I, I actually even a Seiko was kind of, you know, like a, kind of expensive at the time, you know, so when I was uh, younger, you know, part of the hobby, you know, part of the very beginning, you know, of, of the, the collection part was really um, a Timex version of, of, of the Cartier tank. I, I honestly don't remember who gave me that watch, but, um, but somebody, I think it was a uh, I think it was an uncle who gave it to me. I, I really can't recall very well, but, uh, but the watch didn't work, you know, very, you know, it was, it was a quartz watch, of course, and, and it didn't work. So I, I just went to, to visit the, the, the neighborhood watchmaker and, uh, and he, for some reason I was, I must've been what, at six or seven years old. And, and he showed me, you know, it's like, oh, why don't you come over here and show me his work, you know, bench. And, um, you know, while he was like changing the, the, the battery inside of the watch, but I was like, well, what are those things? And, uh, and then he had a, a few Seikos and it was, well, I do a lot of this and that, and then, you know, it was kind of cool. And, 
you know, I was kind of hooked from that perspective. But I did a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, um, um, a lot of quartz in the beginning. Quartz, uh, I did, I had, uh, I had a, 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 you know, I started pieces that I don't have anymore, but I had when I first started collecting, um, include those game watches. I've seen those Casio game watches, Okay. you know, and that there was one, there was a, uh, the pyramid game and there was another game that looked like a little bit like space invaders, you know, and you could actually play it on your watch. It was a, the battery would last like literally like two days, you know, it was just like crazy, but it was a, it was a lot of fun. So, uh, so that, that was sort of the beginning of, um, of the collecting or the interest, I guess, you know, in watching, uh, there was no collection per se at that point, but it was, a, uh, it was definitely the, the bug that bit me, you know, and that's kind of how it started and how I started getting acquainted with, you know, Seiko watches in particular. So what sort of, I guess, led you to your modern, uh, collection that you have now, as well as your, uh, you know, watch media profile on Instagram, the, uh, the watcherist, which obviously has garnered a significant following since you've, uh, started that page. Like what kind of, I guess, what led you to the point of your journey that you're at now? Yeah, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, I'd like to say, you know, oh, it's all, all planned out and everything was like, but you know, it, it was, you know, born out of passion, mm -hmm. you know, really was, you know, I, I started paying attention um, to Grand Seiko in particular uh, in the 90s mm -hmm. uh, because I had a friend of mine from Japan who introduced me to it. And he had, um, he had a 44 GS, like a vintage 44 GS. And, uh, you know, I fell in love with it. But back then, you know, if you wanted it, you really had to know someone in Japan to be able mm -hmm. to, to, to get a Grand Seiko or you had to visit Japan you know, and, uh, but as the internet came about, things became a lot easier. Um, but uh, I did discover the brand uh, uh, in the pre-internet days, let's call it, uh, you know, and, and I think that a lot of folks at the time was a pretty lonely space, <laughs> you know, like we didn't have, uh, we didn't have a lot of, uh, uh, again, not a lot of folks were, were very interested in, in, in Seiko in general, you know, and very few people actually knew what, what Grand Seiko was, but it was sort of like the way I, it, it came, the brand that, that Grand Seiko brand came to me. And, uh, and then I started doing uh, more and more research about it, trying to understand it. And then, like I said, when the internet came, things became a lot, a lot easier. And uh, I got, I was completely fascinated by the story, you know, behind the history really behind it um, and uh, how they went about, you know, uh, really trying to compete with uh, the Swiss watchmakers by really creating an, an, a, a, a watch that was indeed uh, competitive, you know, from a, a, a chronometric perspective, you know, from an accuracy perspective. Uh, and, uh, but also that had its own sort of characteristics and it didn't start like that, right? Mm -hmm. The first Grand Seiko, which is still one of my favorite Grand Seikos of all time, the 3180. And, uh, they also call it the first, you know, which came out in, in December, 1960, uh, that watch was for all intents and purposes, kind of, sort of a little bit, kind of a Swiss looking watch, right? If you look at it, it's a gorgeous watch, but you know, it's still then, and then, uh, but 
when you get to the 57, right, which is the one that comes right after that, which would be the second, uh, the, uh, the self dater, you know, you start seeing a little bit like those big lugs and things like that. You start seeing the design kind of change. And then, you know, uh, when we get to the 44, that's when, you know, things get really interesting, you know, because it's the debut, so to speak, of the of the grammar design, I think in its full, you know, um, um, uh, sort of uh, exercise, if you will, you know, mm -hmm. in its in its full, you know, sort of ex ex exposition of what it is. Although, like I mentioned, the 57 does have, you know, uh, a, a parts of it or, or a sense of the of that uh, of that uh, timeline and sort of baked into it. But um, but it was, you know, I, I think that's kind of how it, how it, how it started with the Grand Seikos. And, uh, and, uh, you know, the more or the deeper, I guess you, you get into it, you know, uh, I think the more interesting it gets, you mm -hmm. know, because Seiko had, when they were putting together, um, the high-end watches, there was, um, a deliberate decision on the part of the farm to sort of create two different groups, right. That would be producing watch the Dany uh, group and the Sua group, right? Mm -hmm. Which, you know, uh, Shujiri today and Morioka basically. And uh, the idea was, you know, um, uh, to have these two sort of sub companies, you know, kind of duke it out, so to speak, to see if they could actually increase competition and produce a, a better product. So, um, uh, so, uh, uh, you know, if you really think about it, uh, the first Grand Seiko, you know, came out of um, uh, Sua, right? Because that was the, the, the first, but, but Dany was trying to dethrone them, so, so to speak, by creating a sub-brand, a rival sub-brand, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, but, uh, you know, so it's kind of interesting because Dany, uh, the, the Dany movements were selected to, or Dany was uh, instead selected to make movements for the Grand Seiko line, but uh, but they were also producing, you know, the King Seikos at the time, which are really great watches as well in, in, in their own right. But so, you, you know, you, when you get into this, you have all these um, sort of uh, intermingling of, you know, well, maybe sometimes you got to Dany movement into a sewer produced watch and things like that. But for the most part, it was kind of sort of the way it kind of came out. Well, it's sort of interesting too, because typically what you see driving the improvement of products over time is, is external competition, right? Whereas you see Seiko in this era where largely they're sort of unchallenged by anybody else in the Japanese watchmaking industry. They almost sort of had the monopoly at the time. You see them essentially, they're competing with the Swiss. And then they're also saying, okay, well now we, we need to create some competition to keep generating and pushing ourselves forward. Uh, and so they basically pushed themselves by creating internal co competition within the brand and not just like, oh, you know, Joe from the office is trying to beat Jimmy from over here. It's like, no, they're creating two entire separate factories that their sole purpose is to basically dethrone the other. And of course we know how history ended up going. Uh, that's, mm -hmm. why we're, that's why we're here having this conversation today about Grand Seiko, but it's very interesting to see that idea of like generating, uh, you know, competition from within instead of having the external forces creating that competition. And I know that there was some 
uh, competition with the Swiss, but I think the Swiss almost, if I recall correctly, ended up largely kind of almost disqualifying Seiko from being able to continue to compete against them because they weren't they weren't a Swiss brand, and essentially because they were beating them every at every turn they could get, uh, and that became kind of frustrating for the Swiss watch industry. Of course, we also know how that turned out for them later as well. <laughs> but oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, there, there was well, there there's that right. I mean, the 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 interesting part you know about Seiko's innovation is that the quartz innovation mm -hmm. in many ways also uh, cannibalized it's it, you know like it, it didn't only affect the watchmaking the mechanical watchmaking industry in Switzerland but it also affected the mechanical watchmaking in Japan you know at Seiko itself Mm -hmm. You know, so for to the point that, you know, Grand Seiko, they stopped making those watches. You know, there's a whole hiatus in the in the timeline uh, that is really interesting when you when you really think about it. So um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, and but during that period when they were kind of trying to find their identity or trying to really put a, a stamp, you know, if you will, on um, on uh, on on the on the brand and and also uh, on on what they stood for in terms of the quality of the products, it was really interesting because uh, uh, to see that that dichotomy between the the two manufacturing centers, you know, because Danny, for instance, made uh, movements for the forty four GS and then the forty five GS. And that included uh, the astronomical observatory watches that were like phenomenal. So um, in terms of reference numbers, I mean, again, from what I know, and I may not have all the information here, but the Dany produced calibers for the GS line up to the 1974 hiatus, you know, were the 4420, the 4520A, which was a high beat, the 4522, and the 4580, which was the VFA, mm -hmm. you know, and then the Nostratel Observatory, which is the 4520A, you know. So it, it's 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 really interesting to see how deep they got into it and what kind of uh, uh, watches that, what kind of calibers, you know, the quality that they were able to do it. And uh, the chronometry was, like I said, was just, was pretty amazing you know, it's just incredible when you get to see this trickle down of technology throughout the seiko line too not just exclusively being held by the king seiko and the grand seiko lines right i mean you look at uh certain watches that they were producing during that time period like i you know i recently picked up a uh a first generation uh, seiko belmatic in, oh, in, nice. in, in amazing condition but one yeah. of the things when you really start to watch like a, like a breakdown video on this movement or you see like the level of like engineering and craftsmanship and and like really watchmaking prowess and ability that went into a movement like that like you have to think that some of that came from their experiences and the competition they're creating within themselves as a company and even their innovations with regards to like automatic um, chronographs and, and their pioneering in that space as well too as a brand so I think like that, that really that push for innovation and creating something uh, unique as a brand and a lot of firsts in that brand uh, while, while, while still maintaining accessibility was really kind of the flavor of the company, uh, the flavor of the company at the time. Like that's really what they were trying to do. And then later you see sort of that, that 
change that happens because of the quartz crisis, as we kind of discussed, and Seiko kind of going into a bit of a different direction. And now that we're seeing this resurgence of uh, you know mechanical watchmaking and an appreciation for it from the general consumer, and now it's kind of puts them back into that era that they were of innovation, creation, doing something new, bringing value, and really kind of establishing a seat for themselves at the table at the high horology watchmaking uh, kind of groups, you know? So I, I think it's, it's interesting to kind of see Seiko's, um, see Seiko's kind of path that it's taken up to this point, you know? Oh, definitely. It's, uh, it's definitely an interesting thing. But one thing that has been the hallmark of what they've been sort of trying to do um, is really related to quality. I mean, they mm -hmm. really care about the quality of the, of the products. And uh, it kind of really shows. I mean, to me, it shows into into in the in the sort of the the the, the, the big things and and the small things, so to speak. You know, like uh, you know when when people say the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's really amazing to see how how they care about the you know they really sweat the the, the small details and uh, you know and they uh, and they try to sort of a uh, give it um um you know uh, 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 uh i would say you know a connection you know to the past they try mm -hmm. to respect you know what was done before but they're trying to really kind of sort of innovate and bring certain things uh to more sort of modern day you know world and modern day kind of uh, uh designs and, and tastes for the market they are after all business you know mm -hmm. But um, but it is uh, the connection with the with the past that the brand has, you know, uh, with the grammar of design school, and um, you know they, you know they started with all vintage watch. I mean with all vintage. I mean with all dress watches back mm -hmm. then, you know. Now you have a whole slew of things that include uh, chronometers and uh, and um, and diver watches, et cetera, et cetera. But the same tenets of the grammar of design school, that legibility tenet, the precision tenet, the finish tenet, the comfort under risk, all those things are still very present, you know? And uh, so today's Grand Seiko is very different. They make all these kinds of things, but the tenets, you know, are very much, um, are very much the same, which is kind of interesting. And it's interesting when you start seeing how they are also uh, translating that right because it's not an easy thing to do mm -hmm. um you know and uh so we talked about uh, uh noble hero uh, kasugi's son who's the head designer you know i had the pleasure of meeting him in japan and and i asked him what his favorite vintage watch was and he said well it's the 44 gs which i humbly you know agree with because it's it's one of my favorite I and mean, it's definitely my favorite case design uh, especially of the vintage Grand Seikos. But when I asked him what his uh, new favorite model was, he actually pointed to the SBGM221, which is, you know, um, uh, a GMT watch, but it has, um, it's technically influenced by the case of the 3180. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, but it does, it still has the Zorazzo polishing, it still has like, you know, but so he kind of, you, you can think that, you know, as we talked about a little earlier, that if you look at the 3180 and you think that was not necessarily like that Japanese-ness was not there, he kind of brought it, 
to the SBGM two two one or the SBGR two, you know, uh, uh, the SBGR two sixty one uh, that are is the same kind of the same watch, same case, but but uh, one has the GMT function and the other one doesn't. So um, so it's also interesting to see that. You know, as far as the technology part is concerned, I think it's worth pointing out that it's always been, um, uh, uh, SUA has always been the mainstay and it's always stayed at the forefront of the technolo technological innovation. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's true today as well when you, when you think about, um, and by technological innovation, I don't mean innovation in the mechanical part because Morioka is doing a very interesting job with the calibers. But, you know, they were the ones making quartz. They are the ones making spring drive movements today. You know, uh, so Danny was always the rebel in my view, you know, and they continue to be true to their rebel roots, you know, because they stick to mechanical watches to this day, you know. So, so there is that big connection between the, the, the old and the new. That's also reflect on it, and I think, I think it's it's pretty cool, you know. And then, another thing that I think it's interesting that's going on with high-end Seikos right now is the existence of the Micro Artist Studio, and uh, so that's a group of about you know nine, ten watchmakers, super high-end watchmakers. They're based in Sua and uh, with that team. And they're the ones that are making like very, very specific, you know, uh, watches and. Uh, um, one of my favorite watches in my collection is the HE2, you know, which is an incredible, incredible watch. And it's, it's a Credor. It's not a Grand Seiko, uh, but it's probably, you know, uh, that's one of my favorite modern references that they produce. And that watch is entirely made by hand, you know, like the, the movement, the, the beveling, the, the, the dial is porcelain and it's hand painted. And uh, it's it's just you know it's it, the the logo on the dial is hand painted you know so so they they capped all those incredible things you know like they produce eight H's a year on average you know so it's still like very low production so they're able to do this like you know this, it spans like the you know making hundreds of thousands of quartz watches you know quartz movements to making eight super high-end you know kind of thing so it's kind of a very eccentric you know sort of a sort of a watch um, maker that you know it's, it's to me it's, it's always been a an interesting thing to to, to think of and consider when i'm uh, um, when i'm thinking about a collection you know what i mean Mm -hmm. And so sort of like the breadth and depth of your collection is really well captured on your Instagram page, which is The Watcherist, correct? Yes. And so can you tell us a little bit about sort of, um, I guess, that page, how that came to be, what sort of it's all about, and like that The Watcherist brand is sort of about, and then also some of the recognition it's got from some of the larger publications in the watch hobby. Sure. Uh, well, you know, one of the things about collecting watches, you know, and I'm... Um, uh, I'm, an, uh, I'm much older than you are, Eric. And, uh, and the thing is that uh, I, I knew the watch. Uh, I, I was a collector before the internet. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of folks were collectors before the internet. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks loved watches the same way that we love watches today. However, we didn't know where we were, mm -hmm. right? Because it was not just something that 
happens, you know, like that you walk around and you just like strike up a conversation, you know, in the elevator and it's like, oh, you're a watch collector, you know, that's, it was a very unique thing. And, and because I was in this very specific niche, like uh, of watchmaking, but uh, collecting watches, but also collecting Japanese pieces, you know, um, and I do collect, like I said, other pieces too. So, but, but there was that slant on the collection. There is still that slant in the collection. I, uh, you know, there was, there was not a lot of, you know, it was hard to find folks, you know, that you could share that passion with. And then uh, when internet, the internet came up and there was like things like Instagram and this and that and the other thing, um, folks started finding each other, you know, online. And I lurked for, for a very long time. I, I, I had my collection and, uh, you know, and, and it was there. But then I started meeting some of these folks. I, you know, would uh, comment on their postings, uh, on their posts, or I would DM them. And uh, it was just like people were just so welcoming, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it was just like, oh, yeah, you know, I like that. Or send me a picture of this or da-da-da. And I, so I stopped kind of lurking and, 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 and then I had a particular friend who said, look, man, you should just, uh, you know, open an account and, you know, check it out and see, see what happens. Right. And, uh, and that's kind of what I did. I, I'm, I'm a collector my account is a, a collector's account and, uh, I publish the watches that I own. Um, if I meet with friends uh, now, fortunately, because of the pandemic, we're not meeting as often. But, mm-hmm. you know, I would post if I find a watch that somebody else owns that I love, I would post that. And uh, and um, uh, and I started, uh, you know, you know, that's kind of how it started, really. The account started. Um, the one other thing that I think is very characteristic of the work that I do with the watch wrist um, uh, you know, is is the fact that I love stories. I love the stories behind the pieces. So, um, uh, so when I buy a piece, uh, it doesn't matter if it's it's a high end watch or if it's it's a it's a vintage that you know a two hundred dollar you know vintage watch or it's a you know I don't know seventy dollar G Shock. You know, it it, it, it uh, there is a purpose why I I I, I liked it. And I like the idea of telling stories through through time, so to speak. And that's why I thought, well, want to tell stories through time pieces, you know, mm-hmm. and and that became kind of a, a thing for me. And uh, and uh, lately I've been, you know, uh, sort of like, uh, you know, busy with my 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 day day job, so to speak. And I haven't been able to write as much as I as I as I like, but but I always try to provide a little bit more than just a hey, here's a picture, you know, and I think that uh, a lot of folks kind of reacted to it because it enticed people to sort of hey, you're giving me something, you know, and I have something to say about that as well. You know what I mean? You know, so it's it's just like it's almost there's this reciprocity that started. And uh, everything grew entirely organically from there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not a commercial account. It's not it's just a personal collector's account. And um, uh, uh, you know, the the sometimes uh, you know uh, Seiko itself would uh, you know grab a picture you know and, and uh, uh, publish on their own thing. They don't do that anymore. But at the very beginning, they were also learning how to, <laughs> I guess, how to do that. And uh, so, 
so the the uh, I I actually happened to uh, meet some of the folks there to to, to sort of like uh, 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 chat more about uh, about uh, about uh, what they were doing about the, the their watches and so on, and I think that somehow it got got into uh, uh, got around the word got around so to speak. And uh, and uh, the folks at Hodinki, for example, came and said, "Well, we would like to profile your collection. Would you like to do that?" And I said, "Sure. You know, I thought it would be a, a pretty cool thing." So we we did a couple of videos. Uh, we did um, you know they they, do a, they did a photo shoot that I thought was was pretty cool. Um, Will is an amazing photographer. You know, like it's it's just awesome. And then and living in New York, I also happen to you know kind of know. Some of the folks that you know uh, work there, and uh, so that's kind of how it started, and uh, participated I think, in the podcast with them as well. But like I said, at the end of the day, it's this—the purpose of the account really is to to share, you know, information mm -hmm. that you come across, uh, to share your collection, and uh, and you know, sort of give it back because you're you take a lot, right? I mean, I I've learned so much. From, from folks, you know, I have, uh, there's some accounts that are, are great. And, you know, I've, I've, I've ended up meeting like really good friends, you know, like Eric Strickland, who's a, one of the amazing, you know, Seiko collector, you know, Anthony Cable, you know, it's just amazing collectors, Seiko collector, folks in Japan, you know, um, that are collectors, sometimes they're dealers and, uh, you know, they can, you know, uh, have access to certain watches you've heard, in, in, you know, hunting for a particular piece, et cetera, et cetera. So it's been, it's been quite interesting. It's been a, a great experience. Um, it's a lot of work, <laughs> you know, like, uh, but, but it's worth it because, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, it opens doors, you know, you, you get to know other folks, you get to know people and, uh, and the community, the watch collecting community is, um, I don't know, there's something about, I guess, this, this, this bug, you know, that the people have that, that makes it, um, um, you know, makes folks, you know, I don't know, at least I have encountered, of course, every now and then there's, there's going to be somebody who's not going to behave as, as nicely, but for the most part, you know, you, uh, these are very good people and nice people. Mm -hmm. And they just like, you, you want to have a beer with them, so to speak, you know, and, uh, and, uh, that's been in, in translating that experience, that online experience into, into live, you know, get togethers, uh, the red bar folks and Adam is, is, character you know there's greg there's a whole bunch of folks that are really super uh, great human beings and they happen to collect watches they happen to love watches but above all they're just great human beings you know so that's great i think like with regards to the community and i think i've commented on this a few times before in the past but uh, you know you put it so well it's essentially like you know this is very much like an escapist sort of hobby for people right it's very much like this hyper focused niche of these great little obsolete objects that we just all really appreciate and enjoy and the community in itself is sort of it almost has like these unwritten rules very similar to like red bar where it's like don't be an asshole and like watches <laughs> it's sort of kind of what the whole watch hobby is is at all like like no one's here for politics no one's here about the drama going on in the real world we're all here just to talk about you know these amazing things that we enjoy and it's so cool when you can get together with other people that are sort of on the same vibe as you the same sort of understanding that you know 
regardless of what you do, where you're from, what your background is, if you're here to talk about watches, I'm just thrilled that I found another human being that wants to do that with me and let's nerd, exactly. let's nerd out and have a good time, right? Totally, like 100%. And, uh, and it's also, you know, learning um, mm. uh, a little bit about their collecting styles, sharing your own collecting styles. You know, uh, I've always, you know, I, I'm often asked about, you know, well, uh, oh, what's, uh, what's the logic, you know, mm. behind your collection or how do you collect and, and what have you. And, um, you know, it, 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 the thing is that it sort of evolved in, in many ways. And I, I don't know if I do know that mm -hmm. <laughs> because it started in one way and then went in a, in a different way. But when I, when I think about it, uh, I think that the, the piece, you know, needs to speak to me. You know, it, it just at the end of the day, it's that simple, you know, and um, we all collectors, we all try to create our rules, right? Or how are we going to do and how many we're going to have and this, da, 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 da. and it's just, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's exhausting, you know, but my original plan, for instance, was to have, um, you know, to pick a couple of, um, oh, you know, or not a couple, but to pick brands that I enjoyed and uh, that uh, somehow meant something to me and then own one or two or you know depending three pieces of each one of those brands that were really iconic and representative of why that watchmaker makes sense mm -hmm. you know uh, so you don't have to own every piece but if you own okay this is why this makes sense mm -hmm. and uh, and i think that uh, i think that's the way the collection sort of started you know like the like when i when i started really picking the the different the different pieces and uh, uh so i had uh you know I'll say my like now moving uh well i would say this my my collection pretty much today is kind of barbelled between seiko and grand seiko on one side because i have more uh, quantity wise i have more of them than the others <laughs> But then the other part of the the brand is a, is a mishmash. I mean, mm -hmm. the brand. I'm sorry. The collection is is a mishmash of brands that I love, and I think they're they're great pieces, and they all have a little bit of a history in, in that in that world. And within that other part of the barbell, I mean, Rolex has a has a has an important part or plays an important part there. You know, so when I started, uh, my first Rolex was actually an Explorer. You know, and I love that watch love that watch and uh you know he was um well he was uh uh, uh, uh well it was a 1016 that's the, the the first i don't have that one specifically anymore like silly <laughs> i did sell that watch you know but um but it was like and for me at the time it was like okay i'll buy this one rolex and this will be the representative rolex you know, and then you go like, well, but I kind of sort of need a sub and I kind of sort of need a GMT. I kind of sort of need a Daytona. And then you kind of keep growing down that rabbit hole, you know. Uh, so that's when that original idea of collecting sort of like gets, you know, whoa, this is multiplying. And uh, in, on the Seiko side, it certainly got out of hand, so to mm -hmm. speak, you know, but but I still like that notion of, uh, you know, in terms of a north for collecting, mm -hmm. you know, picking 
the the brands that you respect that 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 for you uh, they have meaning uh, they have a history, and uh, and then having a number let's call it a number because it doesn't matter if it's one or ten or whatever a hundred but then you know have them you know under sort of that bucket with a particular story so Rolex is definitely one of them. Um, I love um, uh, uh, on the Omega side. I used to have more. I have only one Omega left in my collection, which is a Speedmaster, and that's it. You know, uh, and uh, you know, again, as as collections come and go, but there are so many interesting pieces that I um, from made by Omega that I think are wonderful. And you know, you got to they're they're still going to make their way back into the collection or new watches, but but right now it is what it is. But I have. Uh, um, you know, I have a Breitling and the Breitling is an avid timer, you know, and that was again, so, so some of those early tenants remain, you know, I don't have like 20 Breitlings. I had just one Breitling, mm -hmm. um, same, uh, I have a Doxa, which I love the Doxa, you know, I think it's an incredible, you know, kind of the revival and I have the reissue of the black long, you know, which again, it's a storied piece and mm -hmm. you have to have like the recognition of where that whole thing started and how that company got together to really fully appreciate, you know, that particular piece. And so every single watch has a, has a little bit of a, has a little bit of background and, uh, and a story behind it. And when he, when he comes down to the uh, Seiko part and the Grand Seiko part, which oftentimes I, people sort of ask, well, if you're starting to collect Grand Seiko in particular, what, what would you do? And uh, I always say this, I mean, there are four models that I think are the backbone of any collection, you know, um, of Grand Seiko. And they're mostly, uh, they're seminal vintage pieces, right? And uh, they are the first four, you know, the 3180 or Grand Seiko first, the 57 GS, the self-dater, the 44 GS that we talked about and the 62 GS which you know is that bezel less kind of model and it's very very amazingly done that that case is incredible uh, to the point that grand seiko today has revived the 44 gs case and the 62 gs case you know there are some models that are you know i have some of those modern models whose cases have been influenced by you know the the the, the those those four models but i have a feeling that and the 3180, of course, there's been several reissues, and now there's a bigger 3180, et cetera, et cetera. And there are variations like we talked about, you know, the say the SBGR, you know, 261 as an example that we talked about, the Inkasugi Sun's, you know, favorites. Uh, you know, it's it's always related to the 3180. So I, when I look at the, you know, the 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 sort of the pantheon so to speak of, of of grand seikos and the vintage ones and you look at that connection and we talked about earlier on the podcast mm -hmm. in this conversation uh about you know how they they have managed to bridge the past mm -hmm. and the future i think that if you want to do or be a, a grand seiko collector you know at least one example of the, and there are many you know sort of variations of those of those pieces within uh, you know, uh, within themselves, but, uh, you know, the 31, just to give an example of what I'm talking about, the 3180 itself, um, came in, in three different, uh, sort of, uh, uh, models, so to speak. The, the first one, which is the rarest is just got a printed logo on it. 
And then they have a carved logo as well, which is the one that I have in my collection, which in my view is the most beautiful one, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm biased. <laughs> and, and then there's also the one that has just the, the dolphin hands, you know, like the, the, and that's the most popular one that you have. And then it has an applied dial. And um, the one that I love the most is, is the one actually that I have. And it was by, it took me a long time to really find that watch, but it's a carved dial with mountain hands. And so within, within that, you know, so even within it, but if you don't want to get too nitty gritty about it, you know, just think about 3180, you um, and you want to get started, you know, uh, I think those are four seminal kind of pieces to have. So like one of the issues that you run into a lot, uh, as if you collect like standard Seiko, not necessarily grand Seiko is sort of Seiko's record keeping when it comes to variations within certain models, whether it's certain bracelet types, hand types, dial types, all that, like they, they didn't typically keep like phenomenal records and all those all these different variations that's something that you run into regarding uh, grand seiko at all or is was it the documentation for grand seiko very different from the standard seiko lines uh you know i i there's some some things that i know about that and some things that i don't you know so i think that there are i mean to me um Anthony Cable has been able to, I think he's a much better person to answer that question because he's really like a scholar on sort of like the actual literature and et cetera. My understanding is basically there was not a lot, mm -hmm. right? Uh, a lot of it was done through the catalogs. So a lot that we know today about those models uh, uh, comes from investigating and finding and unearthing, you know, these catalogs that have been, you know, around and sometimes, you know, people kept them and what have you. And, you know, and there are pieces that, uh, as far as I know, have never been, you know, kind of cataloged anywhere, except that they showed up in mm -hmm. a catalog. So there's a picture of the watch, you know, so we know it existed because there's a picture of the watch in an official, you know, Seiko, you know, catalog, but not that, you know, they're like archive, like, I, I don't think that there was a, uh, at least publicly, I don't think there is, uh, at least from what I know, uh, they are, you know, they don't do like, a, you know, that Omega does a certification and you can go there and it can check it out on the archives and say like, okay, this is a vintage piece. I, uh, we produced that, it checks, blah, blah, blah. like Grand Seiko, as far as I know, does, doesn't do that. And, uh, you know, and I don't know if they don't do that because they don't want to do it or because they simply don't have the records, you know, and if I were a betting man, I would say it's the latter. Yeah, I think at this point, especially with the sheer volume of pieces that they've been producing for as long as they have, it would be a nightmare to, to manage all that data, especially after the fact now, going back and retroactively sort of creating a form of records. But do you think that's sort of one of the cool things about, I guess, the enthusiast groups that are around uh, this good Grand Seiko, particularly vintage Grand Seiko and Seiko brands, is really that like so much of the information we have is really generated from the community and their own like sleuthing and detective work that you're seeing these uh these enthusiasts really put into creating these uh information sources for the community 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt about it. I mean, there's a, there's a lot, and and um, there, there's a, a, a lot of uh, of information out there right mm-hmm. now that has been, um, you know, sort of uh, cold, you know, like like sort of gathered, you know, mm-hmm. by by the community itself, and uh, you know, it keeps it, it keeps uh, uh, kind of a uh, um, you know growing from from that perspective. You know, there are, there's a a gentleman um, uh, in Japan now that has been putting together, you know, books uh, uh, that uh, are, you know, completely uh, um, uh, sort of like incredible pieces of, 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 of sleuthing, as you as you mentioned, you know, like, and he even had access to um, to uh, 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 Tanaka-san, who mm. is still alive, you know, mm-hmm. like, and uh, he's kind of a curmudgeon so that's what i hear so he doesn't necessarily talk to to the press that much or anything but for for some reason you know um uh uh the gentleman had access to 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 him and uh and um you know it 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 really turned out to be you know really quite interesting to to actually have access to to those books and 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 read them so for folks who uh, are interested in that kind of scholarship you know, Mr. Seikosha, you know, is the handle on Instagram, you know, and uh, it's, it's just a, you know, fantastic work that that's been done out there. And, um, you know, and it, again, not only about Grand Seikos, it's, it's Seikos in general, he has a whole book on, uh, you know, um, uh, divers, there's the whole thing on the, the chronographs and so on. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool. And there's, there's lots of, uh, lots of really interesting uh, bits and pieces of information that uh, come to to life you know when you when you start um, when you start digging and a lot of it and I've said this uh, you know um, before it's you know you know one always you know when one has a passion one always wants to have I guess more time to do these things but a lot of this I, I don't think it's history that's been documented. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's almost like an aura, like a, uh, you know, it's like a, you know, it's been has to be transmitted orally. You know, it's like, you know, and and those folks are still alive, some of them, but they're they're getting old. It's almost, it's almost like you need to tap into mm-hmm. that intelligence and and grab that. And I think that that's a lot of, uh, you know, Mr. Seikosha, you know, uh, in, uh, is trying to do is to really sort of hear it from the proverbial you know, horse's mouth from people who actually lived it. Um, and uh, and just really get to get to sort of document you know that and create some kind of record of what's been what's been created and and how you know certain things came to be you know it's the same um, a thing with the let's say the spring drive spring drive is also a really interesting story you know like they started making this thing like I don't remember the exact year, but it was like 20, 25 years ago. And they persevered, you know, trying to, you know, go through it because they knew that the technology, they had the idea, they just didn't have the technology to do it. So they kept funding it until the technology, so they actually achieved that, you know, that thing, the, 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 the goal that they had with that. And uh, I'm going to tell you, the spring drive is, 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 a, is an amazing feat, you know, mm-hmm. like it, to me, it's a, uh, and I'm going off on a tangent, but but it's 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 an amazing feat of 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 watchmaking, and I think that a lot of folks still sort of um, either don't fully uh, 
grasp or don't care because they think it's kind of, oh, it's quartz, it's not really mechanical. But a spring drive movement, they're very similar, you know, to a mechanical movement, you know, except that the key difference is the quote unquote escapement mechanism, mechanism, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, of course, you know this, but in the mechanical movement, it is the kinetic energy from the mainspring that powers through the gear train, right? And, um, and, uh, it goes through, you know, the, the, the escapement or the dissipation, you know, it's regulated by the balanced wheel, you know, to keep, to keep time, of course. Uh, but instead, you know, when you look at uh, the spring drive calipers, uh, the rotational motion of the mainspring powers the movement, right? But there's a system that has like three pieces, a stator, a coil, and a rotor, and it functions as a, as a, as a electromagnetic brake, so mm -hmm. to speak. And as the brake is applied, the electric power that is generated, just like a hybrid car, so to speak. So it, it is that that powers the, 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 the IC, you know, the, 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 the integrated circuit. So this electric energy then gets used, you know, powering the integrated circuit and the integrated circuit and the quartz oscillator. So it's amazing because the oscillator generates a frequency uh, that's then communicated back to that glide wheel and allows the watch to keep time. So that's kind of this, the escapement, so to speak. And the frequency that they find is about eight revolutions per glide, uh, you know, eight revolutions of the glide wheel per second. And uh, just to have an idea, I mean, like it's, again, it's like a, an electric car, you're generating energy to power it. And, uh, but you need 0 0.025 microwatt to actually power that watch it's almost which is pretty cool spring drive technology is almost sort of like a, like a, a a movement that came from an alternate dimension where the quartz crisis didn't happen and it's sort of like the next natural evolution of mechanical watch making and it's cool to see it now because there's this appreciation for mechanical watches again so they're able to really capitalize on that technology that they developed but it, it's sort of just it's this like interesting it's this interesting development in watchmaking, which otherwise largely mechanical uh, watch technology has been pretty much unchanged for the last 200 years. So it really is this this massive leap forward. And I think you're right. I think people either have sort of a strange uh, opinion about it, maybe because they think it's it's associated to quartz in some kind of way, or they don't care to grasp or understand really what it is. But it, it really is a significant leap forward in, in mechanical watch uh, movement technology. It really is something special. And I think that yeah, that's a, a great topic to go down as well, too. Yeah. And it's self-sufficient, right? I mean, you, you don't mm -hmm. need, you know, a, a battery, you know, it's the mm -hmm. kinetic power that is actually providing, creating that, that's being translated, you know, into electric energy, which then uses, you know, you use that energy to power the IC and the IC then, you know, finds out the right frequency to keep time and then tells back to say, okay, apply the brakes, the magnetic brakes. So this thing doesn't go out of control. You know, so when you, um, um, when you, uh, sort of wind a, a spring drive, you, you probably, if you pay close attention to it, when you're, when you're winding it, the second hand is going to go a little faster, you mm -hmm. know, just for like, I don't know, the first second or so, or two seconds or so it's just because all that burst of it, if the watch obviously had been, had no power. I mean, you know, the watch had, had to be stopped for, for, for you to, to see this. But, uh, but if you do that, you're going to see that just a, 
you know, first to second or to second, second, you know, you got that burst of energy, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and the thing kind of like, and then it self-regulates self and then it starts like moving at a regular, you know, at the, at the regular speed. So it's, it's interesting. It's, 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 it's a really, really kind of nice, um, uh, nice invention. And I think, uh, I think that's the future, could you be honest with you, the future of uh, um, Grand Seiko, which is not to say that I think that they would stop making, you know, mechanical watches, mm -hmm. but it's clear that to me anyway, that the way they are um, deploying spring drive is where the high-end stuff is. So the HE2, it's spring drive, the eight-day power reserve, you know, I, I, those watches that are, you know, super high-end. Um, um, if you look at the Petit Sonnery and all like that, those are all spring drive movements. Mm -hmm. Everything that's manufactured in the micro artist studio, you know, is, is using a spring drive movement, movement. So to me, it's, it's pretty clear that they, they have invested in this technology and they think that that's um, something that's going to continue to power the high-end watches that they make. You could really sort of see them maybe start to divide up the catalog between like historical Grand Seiko and then modern Grand Seiko in the sense of like, you know, the, the historical themed pieces will have like mechanical uh, movements in them still, whereas the, the, the modern Grand Seiko pieces or that are supposed to be with modern design in them are going to focus strictly on the uh, on the spring drive, which I think is sort of kind of the direction you're starting to see them go now. Um, definitely. So uh, really quickly. Um, did you have, I know you had mentioned earlier on in the show today about uh, storytelling behind a piece and mm -hmm. the importance of that for you. Did you have a couple pieces that had a significant story behind them that you would like to share? Or you'd be willing to share and, and kind of some of the, uh, tell us a little bit about the piece and how it came to be in your collection. Sure. Um, so, uh, so let's take, for instance, my, my uh, 3180, right? The one mm -hmm. that I was, I was talking about. Uh, so that watch, you know, first it took me a long time to try to understand, you know, uh, what watch I, I really wanted. So, so that in and of itself, you know, took a lot of reading, took a lot of like talking to folks and trying to figure out, you know, understand uh, the history behind uh, the, the models, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, you, you, you kissed, I kissed a whole bunch of frogs, right? I got watches that, you know, were Frankenstein watches, you know, we've all been there and, uh, you know, oh gosh, that goes to, you know, we, you know, the, either the garbage bin or, or, you know, like the pieces that are there that are original, you save it for spare parts and what have you. And then uh, I had a friend who introduced me to um, a friend that uh, uh, he knew in Japan and uh so the the this guy you know so i i went there uh uh you know and i was visiting this friend in japan mm -hmm. and then he said listen uh i think that i don't have it i don't but i think i know somebody who can actually help you so i went and i kind of like i was in one part of japan i had to travel to another part of japan to meet this individual you know, and then I had a chance to do so. And, uh, you know, and then he said, well, listen, I don't have exactly, this is not exactly what you're looking for, but I will source it for you and all that. And so we took a good chunk of time, you know, until the whole thing happened. 
probably, you know, about two years until I actually had the watch. You know, not that it took that long for him to, to source it, but it took like that long for me to go through the motions of actually getting to the watch that I really wanted, you know. And so, so, so that was, um, that's one that's, uh, that I love and it's part of the collection that I think uh, will always kind of be there. Um, I have uh, a tiny, tiny Movado. It's a 34 millimeter watch that has incredible sentimental value to me because that's the watch that my dad got after, you know, that Lenko, you know, that the, the Lenko that no longer, who knows where it is, but the, the Movado was kept, you know, and uh, my dad was wearing it when I was born. You know, and, and then he, he gave that to me, you know, later. And so that watch has a, an incredible sentimental value. It's not a, a pecuniary value, it's financial value, but it has an incredible um, uh, sentimental value to me. So that's a, another piece that I, I really enjoy. Um, there was a, another uh, piece that I uh, had to procure uh, the, the SBGJ 005. That's the Mounty, the Mount Iwati uh, dial. Um, that's one that that's the one that won the Petit Aguil, you know, sort of a prize. And uh, I fell in love with that watch. Uh, and but I didn't buy it when it came out. So I missed the boat, so to speak. You know, I was like, oh, and then I, and then I needed to find um, a watch. I needed to find that watch, you know, from somebody. And that was another, you know, kind of hunting kind of thing, you know. And and it's always like, it always kind of starts the same way, like a friend of a friend who saw something. In this particular case, it was a friend of mine. Uh, it was French, and he. Uh, participated, you know, participates to this day in like French forums and whatnot. And uh, he knew that I was searching for that watch and he actually knew somebody in that uh, community that was actually selling one. So it was like this kind of like uh, the serendipity of it all, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I don't speak French, so I wouldn't have been able to have found it myself, but this guy had it and then he introduced me to this other guy. And then, uh, you know, one thing leads to another, you know, and I was, you know, going to go to, to and this friend of mine was going to uh, go to France to visit whomever. And it's like, I can pick it up. And when I, next thing you know, like I have the watch. And, you know, so those are the stories that are, that are super cool, you know, that you, that you can, you know, sort of uh, identify. I have one other watch that, it, this is incredible, actually. I was... 17 years old, I was in, uh, you know, so I was a senior in high school, you know, I was getting ready to go to college. And um, I bought a G-Shock, you know, a square G-Shock, you know, straight out. And I, I loved the watch. I, I love square G-Shocks. That's a, you know, uh, that's a whole other party. <laughs> that's a whole other podcast for us to, to talk, podcast episode for us to talk, uh, Eric. But but I, I really do like them. And I bought that watch in um, uh, 1987, all right? And so, and uh, you know, it was my watch, I loved it. And uh, I still have that watch to this day, but here's the catch. I've never changed the battery of that watch and it still works. That's amazing. 
Isn't that crazy? That's I mean, crazy. I don't know how that's even possible, but it's wow. been there, you know, and uh, it's working. You know, it works. You you can actually wear the watch. You know, That's like the, crazy. you know, the the keeper broke, <laughs> so it's kind of one of those things. I got to put like a modern keeper there. But it's uh, you know, it's it yeah, the watch still still works, and it speaks to the quality. I did a little research on that, and uh, it speaks to again the stories, right? Uh, it speaks to the quality of the uh, batteries, because Casio was when they were putting together these things. I mean, they had this concern about. Uh, the watch is consuming a ton of uh, 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 battery because it's a, it's a it's a quartz, but also a digital watch. So you have a display and you know, the thing's mm -hmm. always on, you know. And they were, you know, and and they kind of like were really trying to source extremely high quality materials and what have you. And there was an incredible like sort of uh, um, uh, sort of quality control, you know, thing that they were doing to uh source those batteries uh especially in the very beginning because th that's an early you know kind of early stage you know g-shocks so so there you have it you know so you have like you know that to me it's amazing that the thing still works but it's it's there at some point i either i'll outlive it or it will outlive me i don't know <laughs> that's incredible wow yeah I, I mean i've seen g i've had a couple g-shocks as well too that have had had the batteries go for 10 12 years but nothing that's been i mean that battery's been running longer than i've been alive that's insane so there you go isn't that that's, crazy that's more than a quarter century that's unbelievable wow yeah, it, it's it's incredible and uh you know who knows you know how, how long uh how long else it's going to 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 last but it's 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 still there you know and whenever i check the box you know i go like are you you know has it gone blank no it's still there and it keeps time <laughs> you gotta you gotta contact g-shock and tell them about that they probably want to like you know want to document that for the museum or something like that that's 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 a good idea you know i hadn't, I hadn't thought about that but uh yeah i better do it quick right because <laughs> i at this point you you're know, on borrowed like, time exactly <laughs> that's unreal wow that's a, that's incredible well you know, JP, you've shared so much about your, your collection and about yourself t with us today in this incredible episode. I mean, it's been absolutely phenomenal getting to know about yourself and hear about your passions. You know, as a uh, someone who's definitely like matured their taste over time and really sort of has found, you know, their place in the watch collecting world and what they enjoy and, and sort of what sparks joy for them in this hobby. What is one piece of advice that you would impart to the current collectors or the people who are new to the hobby and coming into this, uh, coming into this collection, the one piece of advice that could save them a decade of, uh, you know, kissing frogs, as you so put it. Yeah, I, I think, I think, well, there, there are two things I think I would say. The first one is buy what you love, you know, mm -hmm. just don't buy what's fashion or what the other guy has or what's, uh, you know, trendy or trending, you know, just, do you love the piece? Like, mm. if you love the piece, if it talks, if it speaks to you, then you should own it. You know, mm. you should, uh, you know, uh, I think that's, uh, you know, collect what what you love. Now, if you're in the business of collecting, right? If you're in the business, period, <laughs> then it's a completely different story. Mm -hmm. But if you're in the business because you, you're going to collect, you want to you have it, you want to perhaps give it to your children you want to pass it on just then then find something that that you know that speaks to you uh it could be one piece it could be a brand it could be you know um um you know uh, 
a selection of brands, whatever that is, but or a selection of pieces. But it's got to be stuff that that kind of speaks to you and has mm-hmm. to have a reason, you know, for for it to be, you know. Um, and uh, so that's that's one thing that I think it's uh, it's really important. Another thing that I would I would say is, you know, the the watch industry, you know, is a uh, you know, it's kind of a little trite this to say this, but but it is true. Nobody really needs a watch, mm-hmm. right? So so you can, you know, tell everything tells time these days from your phone to your computer to you know kind of everything, you know. So uh, part of it is is really sort of figuring out that you're buying something that is both anachronistic, you know, and um, and uh, in many ways, uh, 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 not necessary, you know, like for for its function, mm-hmm. you know, for which is to tell time. But but you're buying it because there's you're collecting and you're buying it because there's something else that connects you to that, and that to me is this notion of um, of uh, utilizing something or or acquiring rather something that has a value or a legacy value that is not transient because everything else that we seem to buy these days has a expiration date right Mm. so you buy a phone and that phone will will die because you're going to need a a more modern phone and if you're recalcitrant and you don't want (laughs) to you don't want to buy a new phone at some point you're going to have to buy a new phone because the company the the, that is selling you cell service is going to not support your phone anymore Mm -hmm. so things are not necessarily made to to last they're made to for for a long time they're made to last uh, for a cycle you know but they are replaceable but but you know watches you know are one of the few things you know that you buy and you keep them you know they have like they have a lasting and enduring quality to it Mm -hmm. and i think that's that's pretty amazing and and that to me applies to be handed not only to collecting watches but to collecting almost everything else that 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 i have interest in for instance so uh you know my wife and i love uh, you know uh, modern uh, architecture and we love uh, modern uh, uh, furniture Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, especially, you know, for mid-century, and uh, so I can, you know, the quality of uh, Hans Wagner, you know, chair, for example, uh, made in the '40s and '50s, is just incredible, mm-hmm. right? And and has that enduring quality to it, right? We have pieces that were passed on. Uh, from uh, my wife's, you know, uh, parents that they gave it to us. Uh, we have pieces that we sourced ourselves, and but the concept, you know, like to go arching back to your question, uh, is the same. You know, it's like to me, it's something that um, has a lasting, you know, enduring quality to it. So that those are the two things. That, you know, like uh, I, I think that you know, again, you know, uh, I'm not a. Um, I think there's 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 a component. Let me say I think there's a component. You know the difference, like sort of between fashion and style. Mm-hmm. You know that people argue fashion comes and goes, right? I mean, every 
you know, it's part of the business, you know, the companies need to have new clothes and they need to have new colors and they need to da 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 da, da. And, and that instigates, you know, people to buy it and whatnot. But then there's style, there's, there's, there's what, what represent, what, what do you stand for, so to speak? You know, how do you want to, how do you want to be perceived? How, how is, is Eric's brand? You know, what is Eric's brand? Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, collecting, if you're into collecting watches, and it's something that, especially for, for guys, you know, uh, although uh, thankfully uh, more, more women are now, you know, coming to, to and sharing this hobby with us, which I could not welcome more. I mean, I think it's great. Diversity is fantastic. But it's, it's just, but, but, but for, for us, for guys, you know, we don't, we don't have a ton of stuff to make some kind of statement and, and you know but, you know so it watches usually one if not the piece of jewelry that you can that you can actually wear mm -hmm. and it, it becomes part of it so who how does that piece fit into your style does it help define your style does it add to it you know so those are the the way the ways i think about you know when i'm thinking about collecting Mm -hmm. oh, that was some incredible insight and some knowledge and I think that you know that level of understanding of oneself and sort of the hobby only comes from experience and I think that for anybody listening definitely think about you know what JP said today think about some of those uh, great little tidbits of knowledge because I think that that's something that if more people in the hobby or if the hobby as a whole sort of adopted those tenets of collecting uh, you would see a uh, an even more healthier, happier uh, space and community around this around this hobby for sure. So, JP, it's been fantastic chatting with you today. Absolutely amazing episode, full of so much knowledge. I've learned so much. I know the audience did too. It was incredible. Really quickly, what are some uh, some of your landing spots or your social media uh, places where people can get in contact with you or enjoy some of your content? Uh, well, uh, I, 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 I do primarily Instagram, so mm -hmm. it's at the watcherist, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, so folks can, can check it out. The collection, if you want to reach out, just hit that DM, you know, sometimes things get a little busy, but, uh, I tend to, to, to really, uh, read them all. And, uh, sometimes I can't answer them all, but I, I definitely read them all. Uh, so that's, I think the best, the best way I don't have like many presences, I do have this idea of someday kind of give back more to the community with more stories, though so, um, perhaps a, a blog or something to that effect where I can actually do longer form, mm -hmm. you know, storytelling because Instagram is very limiting from that perspective. Uh, that is uh, the horizon, you know, the websites, uh, I do own them, but um, but I haven't really, it's, it's just a function of time, you know, mm -hmm. like not, not having it. So, but, uh, so, so Instagram is the best way to, to do it, you know, um, feel free to reach out and, uh, feel free to take a look. Uh, the collection is there and, uh, um, usually the, the new watch alerts, you know, posts, you know, if folks want to know more about the history of, uh, each piece, uh, that's usually when I when I write the most about it. When I do, I kind of give my rationale as to why this thing is now part of the collection, so to speak. Uh, so you know, so look for those piece uh, those posts uh, tend to tend to have uh, uh, if one is interested in the in the, the history and the story uh, behind the the piece. You know, the technical parts and uh, 
and uh, why why it matters to me anyway. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah, guys and girls and everyone listening, please go check out the Watchlist on Instagram. Fantastic resource, amazing photography, beautiful pieces, and you just get to chat with uh, JP if he's able to get back to you and uh, enjoy some of the uh, enthusiasm that he has around his uh, amazing collection and around some of these brands that he's really passionate about. Uh, likewise, for myself, if anyone has any questions, comments, or feedback, please uh, shoot me an email at the Rico's Watches Podcast uh, Gmail account, which is Rico's Watches Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, additionally, you can uh, get in contact with me directly through Instagram as well, too, or follow along with any updates uh, regarding the show, my own collection. I kind of just keep it as a general eclectic profile of myself and what I'm doing with the show. That's going to be at uh, Rico's Watches Podcast on Instagram. If you're enjoying this uh, episode in a audio medium and or enjoy the show in an audio medium and for certain episodes would like to see a video as well you can head over to the rico's watches podcast the youtube page which is just rico's watches podcast this episode will be audio only but there are plenty of other video episodes uh, out there you can enjoy as well too if you like to follow along or play us on your laptop or work computer while you're listening or anything like that once again jp it was fantastic chatting with you thank you again for coming on the show it was an absolute pleasure it was a tremendous pleasure, Eric. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Stay safe, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care.